In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six months free of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Today, we plunge headlong into the politics of real estate, an issue that never fails to concern people even before the changes brought about by the coronavirus, changes that we won't understand fully for years to come. Joining us are two guests. First up is David Schleicher of Yale Law School. His expertise is land use. If that sounds dry, our talk was anything but. He kept presenting one surprising idea after another, and even though, as you'll hear, we disagreed on some points, I found our conversation riveting. Then, later in the show, I'll talk with Gothamist senior editor Elizabeth Kim about retail blight, where ground-level retail spaces go empty, a phenomenon only worsened by the pandemic. But let's start with Professor Schleicher. It's hard to find an issue that excites more passion among urban dwellers than gentrification. For some, gentrification isn't just a policy issue, it's an urban culture war. Schleicher rejects that framing. He says that the real moral issue is the lack of housing at all levels, in every neighborhood, in every successful U.S. city. And he says the blame for gentrification doesn't sit squarely on the people moving in. The first thing I'd say is that, in general, rich people don't want to move to poor areas. They want to live where other rich people are, right? Mm -hmm. So that if you ask a rich person coming to New York City, where do you want to live? They'd say Greenwich Village or so. They don't want to live somewhere in Brooklyn that's gentrifying, right? So the demand for gentrification is driven by restrictions in existing developed areas. If we don't build a new building in some place, rich people will still move there. They'll take the existing houses and they'll put up that Nutra font on the front um, and renovate the whole thing. And so demand to move into gentrifying areas is driven by broader economic forces, not by new construction. What is the uh, other side of that? So there's a theory that a new building, even if it broadly reduces prices across the city, region, or whatever, could increase prices in its neighborhood because it adds a Whole Foods, it adds a wine bar, and then yuppies move in. Research increasingly shows that that's not the case, that in general, summarizing research by Evan Mast and others, even at the neighborhood level, Building new housing, because it adds supply, generally drives down rather than increases prices in the area. Gentrification is driven by restrictions on building everywhere. Who benefits from the status quo in the New York real estate industry now as it currently exists? So landowners mostly. And so landowners can be big landowners or they can be small landowners, like people who own apartments. Um, we've, seen, we've seen a huge increase in the value of real estate, including 
individual apartments, houses, and big land holdings. And so restricting development as much as we do. Um, the people who benefit from that, given the huge demand to live here, are people who have the scarce resource. What about the real estate industry itself? Are you saying they want slow growth because they want to keep values high? So developers these days are mostly lobbyists, right? So if you make it extremely hard to do something, it's actually quite beneficial if you're the only person who can get something through, right? So if you are the only person who can achieve the combination, weird combination of lots and hire the fancy lawyers to get something built, you're going to gain enormously, whereas someone who could build a small pop-up on top of their building but can't deal with the politics won't see those gains. And so it actually is quite in the interests of lobbyists to be the only winners in the system. Hudson Yard. Well, so Hudson Yards gets a huge amount of public money. It's a little bit more complicated situation. Because the city wanted to build an alternative commercial center. A mall. Offices, really. Like a third downtown was basically the idea. Mm -hmm. Um, At the time, I I had recommended to say that they should build Murray Hill there. And everyone said, everyone hates Murray Hill. Why would you do that? And I said, New York has enough places to go to. New York needs more places to be from. Right. And – the, I mean, there's, there's housing built. They need built. more bedrooms. They need more bedrooms. And there is housing built in Hudson Yards. Um, it is valuable to have office space in Manhattan to the region because it's the most transit accessible place. But New York City needs a lot more houses. Um, and uh, they could have built that with much less subsidy. And it would have been more valuable. Because I went to, I mean, I don't want to. Also, it's horrible. I mean, that's another thing. Well, but I I don't want to speak ill of a specific project like Hudson Yards. But a friend of mine was working in that area. And we took a walk through the shopping center, so to speak, the mall is what I call it. And it looks exactly like a mall, like where I grew up on Long Island. I got this chill. It was empty. And I'm walking around, and there's just row and corridor after corridor of shiny glass and fancy stores and names we all know, and there was nobody there buying anything. Yeah, so one of the huge problems with Hudson Yards is that it's off the street grid. And so the street grid is um, uh, New York City's greatest invention as far as I'm concerned. The expansion of the street grid makes uh, it easy to buy and sell property. It makes the city legible to outsiders. And the moving it off the street grid— You have to go in a building and go up an elevator. Which was designed to make it exclusive. Um, It's a mall uh, for rich people. It's a mall for rich people. But that we see a kind of bias towards luxury in these things is itself a product of exclusion, right? So that if um, you could only build one thing— it's going to be bought by the person with the most money. And so the fact we talk about, like, is it luxury or is it not luxury? Well, lots of housing goes from luxury to not luxury, and housing goes from not luxury to luxury all the time. So I lived in Park Slope growing up. My, my father and stepmother did. And um, a house was a luxury house when it was built. It declined. It was subdivided into apartments. Mm-hmm. And then now it's recom- the same house recombined into a luxury apartment. So <laughs> is, it, is it a luxury house? Is it not a luxury house? Luxury is either the finishings, you know, which is which can right. come and go, or it's a product of the supply and demand for the market. And so among the downsides of the Hudson Yards project is if it declines, which, you know, things have the habit of doing, right. it's going to be extremely hard to retrofit. So that's the one thing, which is that thinking of, like, this is luxury and not luxury is a product of the housing market as opposed to anything else. What about people who are uh, speculative buyers who are buying units that they're renting out or they're just going to sit on it and then flip it 18 months or two years from now for a profit? Or people who have these luxury residences we read all about and they only come to New York for four weeks a year on a shopping spree, then they go back to fill in the blank some wealthy enclave overseas. Vacancies. Right. Um, you do see very localized 
periods of vacancy. So everyone's been to 57th Street and sees the, these tall buildings with no lights on. Right. Um, the actual vacancy rate overall in New York City is not very high. People have this idea that the vacancy rate is driving housing prices, and that is not so. Right. Blaming the vacancy rate or rich Russians for the housing market is a way for people to displace blame from themselves. We are the gentrifying class, right? So it's the group of people who are, by we, I mean upper middle class professionals to lower upper class professionals. It is the lack of housing combined with increased demand to live in the city that drives housing prices, and it's not about rich Russians. That's a localized— It's not. No, no, no. There's been a very big increase in foreign ownership through LLCs of uh, New York City real estate. Most of those apartments are rented out, right? So the number of people who own houses and just leave them vacant, it's generally lower in high-demand areas. It is not a major thing. If you want to see places with huge vacancy rates, it's vacation areas. That's the areas that have huge vacancy rates. Such as? Like uh, Palm Beach, Florida. Has a high vacancy rate. Yeah. Why? Because rich people use it as a second house. Right. Um, If you want to build affordable housing, if you even want to talk about building more affordable housing in New York, wherever it may go, is that a conversation that starts in Albany or in City Hall? So you're talking about below market rate, capital A affordable housing, not decreased price of housing. So those are two different concepts that people Mm -hmm. use somewhat interchangeably. Um, But the price of housing or how affordable it is, is something that's driven by broader supply and demand uh, factors. You're talking about building capital A affordable public housing. Pu- well, public housing or or subsidized housing of right. one version or another. Bingo. Yeah. Um, in that situation, both the city and the state play both a funding and a uh, regulatory role. And so these two issues are not completely distinct from one another. So the city builds a lot of housing through its H- HPD. Um, it does a lot through the inclusionary zoning. They do build a lot of housing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, How much would you say a year do they build? Oh, not, oh, it depends by a lot. A lot of the affordable housing that gets built is built by the city itself, right? When was the last time they built affordable housing in the so city? So it's not public housing right. in the sense of, but they do a great deal of direct subsidy of construction. So every year they're doing thousands of units. For um, who? The same people who are on the wait list to get other types of public housing. Right. I'm just talking about housing for people who are earning under $50,000 a year. We give below market rate housing to people who are earning way above $50,000 a year, right? right? So you frequently target people earning $100,000 a year for a family of four, right? Mm -hmm. So the state funds and the city funds. Um, The city is in charge of siting for the most part, and that is where the land use piece and the funding piece come together. So the fact that land is so expensive to buy— even in the outer boroughs? Everywhere in New York. In the Bronx. I mean, I mean, different prices, but if the city has to compete with private market for buying a piece of land, which it does, the cost of that piece of land will be higher if we restrict than if we don't restrict. So the, so, the issues are not completely distinct. I will say that it is certainly the case that the kind of ordinary construction market won't build housing for very poor people. Like, that is obviously true. The same way that the market won't provide lots of things for very poor people, one of the definitions of being very poor is that you can't buy things at the market. And so that we as we need greater subsidies through vouchers or— What about the poor door to enter for the affordable housing units? Does that exist in the city? So it was a way to comply with inclusionary zoning requirements— um, it's been phased out under the de Blasio administration. There's a famous building on the Upper West Side that had this component, this very upstairs, downstairs story. Define um, inclusionary zoning. So inclusionary zoning is a requirement that as a condition on building, you have to include a certain number of subsidized or capital A affordable units. Right. Of course, 
the broad question with inclusionary housing zoning of any sort is, should it be included in the building or should you be able to build nearby in a separate building? And so the Pordor was a combination of these two things. Mm -hmm. It was building in the building but off-site. The question is, what's the point of inclusionary zoning? So is it to create inclusion in the building level? Is it important to have affordable units, capital A affordable units or below market rates on the same floor as market rate buildings? Is it important at the neighborhood level or is the goal just overall? The Goldman Sachs guys living down the hall from a school teacher. Right. Is is that the goal? Right. Or is the goal just increasing the amount of affordable housing? Right. Because if the goal is increasing the amount of affordable housing, it's very frequently a more efficient mechanism to do it offsite. Because if you're building in the, the fancy, fancy building, you're going to include all sorts of amenities. The cost per unit is higher. For the same number of dollars, you could build more affordable units offsite. And so, so the commingling isn't really that efficient. Well, so the, the the question it's just it's a it's a it's a benefit if you think of it it's just a costly benefit. And so the question is like, how do you think that mingling at the individual building level is the goal? The main justification for inclusionary zoning is. Uh, integration of this sort, right? At the neighborhood level. Economic integration. Economic integration. um, At the neighborhood level. And is it worth the trade-off of fewer units if the goal is like deep integration in the building? And, you know, people can have their own beliefs about this. The last thing I'll say about it is that it's not any form of inclusionary zoning is costly, right? Because if you have to build non-market units inside a building, it's like a tax on building. Um, We could fund public housing in other ways. So we could make everyone who owns property pay for it through the general property tax. We instead tax building, and it's a way of offloading responsibility for our fellow citizens onto the developers and on newcomers. It seems like it's free to say, if you're going to build X, you have to build a certain number of affordable units. But it's not free. It's just a targeted it's property It's like the tax. spirit of the income tax in the sense that those who have more money in the building are going to pay more. Well, that's true at the building level, but there are plenty of people who have more and aren't in that building who are in a building that was built before, right? So that if you look at, I don't know, pick your fancy building in New York, a lot of people who currently own there are super duper 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 rich, and we're not making them pay for affordable units, we're only making the landowner and develop who, the, where the building is being built. And so we are taxing, and it's a, it is a tax, um, uh, but it is a tax that's targeted on developers and newcomers and not on everybody else. Let's say you succeeded in securing the funding and, and just in this fantasy. I come up with a plan where I'm going to build 100,000 units of purely affordable housing, real old school affordable housing, New York City Housing Authority housing. I'm going to build building. I'm going to build 100,000 units over 20 years. I'm going to start, I'm going to start identifying pieces of land and we're going to tear down this, you know, this warehouse that's defunct and this old plant that's not being used anymore in the Bronx. Is that the kind of thing the city needs to be doing? So the thing the city needs to be doing to address its broader housing problems is building in lots of places of all building types and market levels, right? So the the city has a housing crisis at all levels. The country needs to build more subsidized housing, some of which will be in the New York City region. But we also need more market rate housing, and they're connected in the sense that the cost or difficulty of building capital A affordable housing um, is increased if we restrict market rate housing because there's one market for dirt. Uh, and so the city needs to build a lot more. We use, Even market-rate housing? Yes, of course. People who are rent-burdened in New York is almost everyone. And further, New York City's restrictions on its broader amount of housing create an extraordinary amount of economic harm to the country. 
zoning restrictions in New York, San Francisco, Silicon Valley, three markets, if they were relaxed to the levels of your average American city, those areas would draw in lots of people, wages are higher here, that would increase the size of the U.S. economy by people estimate somewhere north of 8%. And so you have some idea of what that would mean, is that would mean creating Canada. So Canada is 8 or 9% of it. <laughs> and so the effect of land use regulations in the New York region, broadly speaking, New York City being a big part of it, but obviously not the only part we're talking, New Jersey, Westchester, Long Island, Southern Connecticut, maybe the worst, and then Silicon Valley and San Francisco, you're talking about 8% of the U.S. economy. I mean, it's an impossibly large percentage. And what's the number one obstacle right now to not being able to do that? Local regulations. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, so limits on heights, limits so on so the densities. Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation is not someone you're a fan of. Oh no, they're the worst. They're yeah, the worst. They're the worst. But I mean, it's, <laughs> it, it, um, I I'm mean, a huge supporter of uh, it. But go it, ahead. It's, right. it, to, totally it's fine. okay. To or, each his own. I suppose you it, say tomato. I say you, you say housing Andrew values. Berman. Yeah. You say Andrew Berman right. and housing values. It's a, um, but it's not just the Greenwich Village Historic Preservation Society, although they are uh, a major. But let me ask you this: but in a prefatory way, what kind of a building do you live in? I live in a tall building in the Upper West Side, a rented apartment in a tall building in the Upper what, West Side. What year? Pre-war, post-war? Post-war. Oh, you live in a post-war building. Post-war building. Right. And, and, and if you had your way, would the aesthetics of the building you live in be of some significance to you? Would you like to live in the Apthorpe or the Bell Nord or the El Dorado so, or so, the San Remo? So abso- I used to live up there for years. Yeah, yeah no. So, so, so no. Um, uh, I mean, they're very nice buildings, so get me wrong and everything. Uh, but um, in general— uh, in housing markets, just as in all other kinds of markets, new things are nicer than old things. Um, and the housing quality in New York, for just forgetting, you know, is um, extraordinarily low relative to places that allow ordinary building. So you don't have central air. You, you go to the Dakota and there are w- window units in the Dakota, sure. right? People have exposed radiators that the kids burn themselves on. It is, there's sure but, you're, but, you're, but your kids are burning their hands on radiators in the Dakota. Yes. Right, very, we do recognize that very, distinction. Very fancy, right. It's a, a, the, the, the air that's blowing in and leaking through the rotting seam of the, of the Friedrich air conditioner you have in the window since 1969 that window is is a window in the Dakota. In the Dakota. It's, it's, sure. it's great. Some people kind of dig that. Oh, I, more power to them. I'm, you know, I don't care what people like. Um, but in general, you asked if what I, you know, that in general, housing quality is judged by a variety of metrics. So like, you know, like um, energy efficiency and uh, size of unit and quality of insulation and stuff. Uh, in new units, just because they're new, are frequently much better than old units. And so like, this is the thing. People can have all sorts of aesthetic preferences. I think some new buildings are nice. I think some old buildings are nice. Sure. But, you know, mm. the idea that historic preservation is about historic preservation as opposed to being about aesthetics is probably wrong. We don't see, if we wanted to know what New York was like in 1960 or 1940, we would choose a random block from that period and allow no building. But that's not what we do. We choose the most aesthetically attractive ones, right? So we say there's an unbelievably beautiful blocks in Greenwich Village or on the Upper West Side or wherever we do. And the question is, these things have clear aesthetic value. They're beautiful. They just have has a cost to limiting them, right? So it's just that you make trade-offs, but it's about aesthetics, not about history is the, is the central point. The second thing I'll say is that I don't have any particular this block needs to be developed or that block needs to be developed. One of the reforms I've proposed, and people have picked it up in a variety of different ways, is to suggest that cities should adopt a zoning budget. They should say, we need to build X number of units this year. It could be designated by the city itself or by the state for the city. And the city could then, when you say, someone says, I want to build this in Soho, and you say, no, I don't want that built in Soho, the opponents have to say where else it should go. 
And that we are then able to have a real conversation about the variety of aesthetic or social or whatever merits of a given building project in the context of acknowledging we need to solve New York City's housing crisis. So I love Greenwich Village as much as the next guy. It's beautiful. Um, The question is, if we're going to build near there, or should we build somewhere else? Opponents of building in Greenwich Village should say, actually, you know, it would make a lot more sense to build in the Upper East Side. That's a good place to build. And then the people in the Upper East Side say, no, the other way around. And we could have an honest discussion about the reality, the kind of the non— Or should we be saying to people, you want to tear the building down, you've got to pass an aesthetic approval? No. No. Um, they so, should be able to build all the the old Fran Leibowitz line. New York is a town where we wherever tear down a building, we always put up an uglier building. A city can't be all stellar buildings. It's just not the kind of thing it would work. I mean, even aesthetics at the street level, like many buildings in New York, where you're going two stories. Yeah, Let's no, have two stories no. of detail. When people propose very, very attractive buildings— they get rejected by community boards and zoning approval. And uh, when they approve ugly buildings, they also do. Um, uh, the reason or one reason people don't bother to spend a huge amount of money on architects is that the people who oppose new building don't actually care that much. Right. They say they care, but they actually just don't want something built near them. And so in a building boom, we generally get a bunch of great buildings, right? And so one of the things that our modern boom has not created is a bunch of great buildings because we just don't have that many buildings overall. Um, uh, And so if it was in anyone's interest, if they really think they could buy off the neighbors by hiring Frank Gehry to do it, they would because it's so valuable to be able to build that if it was worth it politically to hire the schmanciest architects in the history of architects, they'd do it because it's so valuable to them. Why don't they do it? Because it doesn't matter to the people who are opposing it. Andrew Berman would oppose anything. He would oppose it if it was beautiful. He'd oppose it if it was ugly. He'd oppose it if it was designed by, you know— In your opinion. That he would oppose it? Right. I think in his opinion. And the other thing I'd say about this is the same point I made about Hudson Yards a minute ago, which is that New York City needs to house people to go to its offices. Right. Like that's—ultimately a city is a mechanism to connect people to retail opportunities— commercial opportunities and uh, then has a life that's driven by the fact that people are close together uh, in a, an extremely um, characteristic but unromantic line. Uh, the the Harvard economist Ed Glazer describes cities as the absence of space between people. Mm. The city needs to house people and it is a economic and moral imperative to do so. Not doing so creates both losses of output and increases in inequality. And you can point to all sorts of other factors, aesthetics, historic preservation, but the imperative that we uh, allow the economy to grow and that we fight inequality through building more housing is sufficient that trade-offs have to be made. And I would love for people to confront those trade-offs openly. Professor David Schleicher. You heard his sharp critique of the historical preservation movement and the limits it puts on new development. You also probably caught that he isn't a fan of Andrew Berman, a leader in that field, but I am. Berman runs the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation. When he came on the show, he argued that preserving neighborhoods doesn't mean stopping development altogether. There's areas of our neighborhoods where we've fought for new zoning that we thought would encourage good development as opposed to bad developments, which meant the expectation was things will get built. Give us us an example of an area where this came into play. For instance, in the East Village. So the old zoning would have encouraged big, tall towers. So we pushed for and got a rezoning that said, yes, there can be new development here, but the size and scale of it is going to be more like what you think of the East Village, seven-story buildings, six-story 
multi-story buildings. This is what zoning does. To hear my full interview with Andrew Berman, text Berman, that's B-E-R-M-A-N, to 70101. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Alec. With how much we rely on our devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with. Take ears. Like fingerprints, your ears are totally unique. Too bad your earbuds aren't. Unless you've got Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Custom Fit Earbuds. Ultimate Ears Fits offer premium sound and all-day comfort. Their groundbreaking lifeform technology guarantees a perfect fit in only 60 seconds. Just put in the earbuds, connect to the app, and watch as the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. With 8 hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are the perfect choice for listening to your favorite music and podcast all day long without pain or discomfort. For a limited time, get 15% off above the current offer of your pair of Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com fits. Just use promo code FITS at checkout. That's 15% off the current offer with promo code FITS at ue.com FITS. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. When it comes to real estate here in New York, we tend to pay a lot of attention to the cost of renting or buying a place, but the real estate market is broader than that, and so is the draw for living here. That's something that fascinates Elizabeth Kim. She's a senior editor at Gothamist, the New York-focused news website that's part of the New York Public Radio family. She's written a lot about real estate, including the hollowing out of the ground-level boutiques that define New York neighborhoods. We recorded our conversation before the coronavirus completely changed street life and commerce in cities around the world. There's a lot of talk about gentrification and housing, but at the street level, it's about the bodega, the bookstore, the bakery. It's about the erosion of these institutions because retail defines the character of a neighborhood. Right. You know, the New York City controller, Scott Stringer, he did a very comprehensive study recently He basically looked between 2007 and 2017, and he found that the amount of vacant space in New York City doubled. Why do you think that is typically? What's going on? Well, the number one reason, if you talk to brokers, if you talk to small business owners, it's the Amazon effect. It's e-commerce. The way we buy, you name it, shoes, books, clothing, mainly on the Internet now. There are other reasons, too. 
One phenomenon that is really interesting in New York is this idea of retail blight in places like the West Village, in Soho. And these are properties in which investors came in, poured a lot of money into buying these storefronts, wanted exorbitant rents, and then found there was no market for it. And rather than rent it at a lower price and take a hit on their revenue stream, they said they couldn't do that. They have to hold out. So these are stores that have just been empty for months and months and months. Are they writing that off, that empty store? So I've asked people that question. I've asked brokers that question. And the answer I uniformly get from brokers and elected officials is no. So this is basically what I've been told by brokers. When they're buying these properties, they typically take loans. And the terms of the loans state that they need to generate a certain amount of revenue. The terms of their loan is basically constraining them from lowering the rents. And there's this whole kind of adjustment that needs to happen in the market. The banks need to rewrite those loans. And then, then you know, the person holding the loan needs to revise their expectations. Then there's the small business owner who comes in and also needs to kind of revise their expectations of what kind of rent they can, you know, seek to ask of a landlord or, or, or um, demand of a landlord. So... Basically, the market needs to adjust in all these ways, and these are all things that are lagging, lagging indicators. You know, retail rents rose on average 22% across the city over a decade. And in some neighborhoods, the average rent increases were 50%. Mm. And it's rent that's often cited as the number one reason why we have so many vacant retail space. We used to have commercial rent control in the city in the 50s and 60s. What happened? So I haven't been able to find out why it went away. And since the early 80s, there's been a call to reinstate some form of it. And recently, there is a Brooklyn council member who has introduced a bill calling for commercial rent control. And the way it would work is basically there would be a board of, you know, mayoral appointees And they would take a look at all the data that's out there on all the rents, and they would set what they feel is a reasonable rent for a particular neighborhood. And if you're a landlord uh, of a a storefront or even an office building, you would not be able to charge more than that. Who's opposed to that? Obviously, the real estate industry. I mean, they've been fighting these types of controls since the early 80s. I mean, in the early 80s, the city council talked about this for many, many years. Can we help landlords and small businesses mediate a fair rent? So that's how they wanted to do it at the time. Did they try that? Mm, that, Well, that bill was just talked to death. And actually, that bill, believe it or not, it's still up for debate. And there are very strong um, supporters of that bill that still want to see that bill passed. It was originally introduced by Ruth Messenger, such as there, you know, there are just coalitions of small business activists. Where has de Blasio been on this issue in his one plus terms in office? So Mayor de Blasio has supported this idea of a vacancy tax, which would need to be done through the state legislature. And that's something that's been talked about a while as well. So if you have an empty storefront that's been empty for, you know, X number of over X number of months, the idea would be to impose a tax on 
the property owner. Because like we talked about, why are property owners able to keep these storefronts vacant for so long? Don't they want to earn some kind of rent, even if it's less than what they expected? And the theory is, is that, you know, similar to the residential market, there have just been a lot of big investors that have swooped into this market. So it's no longer just Joe Smith decides he wants to buy this property. He's going to keep this storefront on the bottom and keep it occupied. But instead, it's a private equity firm that's not just buying that one storefront. He has maybe a portfolio. And because he has a diversified portfolio, he or she can elect to wait and maybe they have a sense that the market is going to turn. They can afford to hold. To eat it. Yeah. So that's why the idea of a vacancy tax is very interesting because you would think that they would no longer be able to absorb that much, you know. But when I've spoken to brokers and property owners, what some of them have said is, listen, we don't want it to be empty, but look at what's out there. There are not enough candidates to fill these storefronts. And to a point, like, you can kind of see that, right? Because I've spoken to also, on the flip side, I've spoken to small business owners who talk about how hard it is to have enough money to fit out the space. Because people have to realize, if a bakery or a restaurant wants to come in, they're responsible, typically, for fitting it out. I mean, in a weekend market like this, a landlord can elect to maybe chip in some money, Mm -hmm. but... Traditionally, yeah, the build out, it's on the small business owner. Mm -hmm. And then they start talking about the $15 minimum wage, insurance, all of these costs that they have to bear. It's not easy to be a small business owner. So if you think about that, there's some credence to this assertion by property owners that like there's not a ton of people that are beating down their door mm-hmm. saying, hey, give me this space for, you know, just lower the rent and give me this space and I can make it work. Uh, when I came to New York in 1979, it was the big Soho revolution. And there was an edict from the city and the state that the manufacturing core may return. So all the cast iron buildings of Soho, we could not flip them into residential where the pressure was for more apartments in New York. And then finally, everybody turned around and said, it's not coming back. Do you foresee a time when the same thing is going to be said of retail? It's not coming back. So we have to make it into something else. I think that's already being talked about. I mean, this whole concept of pop-ups. I mean, did you ever hear of something like that where basically it's a store or a brand agrees to occupy a space only for like a limited time, six months to a year. I mean, that's a that's a new idea. It's like the Airbnb of commerce, right? They're so they're they're desperate for new ideas. Were you ever involved in covering the residential market at all? So I cover real estate, and by real estate, that's anything to do with oh, the built environment. So I cover housing. You know, I kind of moved into covering retail because. After speaking to people, I began to realize that that is an integral part of the gentrification story. It's one of the first indicators of gentrification is when you start seeing um, the stores turn over. Like it used to be like Starbucks, right? When you saw a Starbucks in what used to be a predominantly lower income neighborhood, that was a sign that this area is gentrifying. So that's why I find retail very interesting to cover because I almost think that more than apartments, 
um, everybody kind of sees what's going on with the empty storefronts because it's so visible. Pervasive, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, who's a person who you think is understanding what's going on? Not for profit? Like from the ground up, I always like to talk to housing activists because they can tell me what are tenants experiencing right now in New York City. Are the rents going up? What's evictions like? What are the housing conditions like? Are are landlords um, treating them better or worse post new rent laws that passed this June? But you can't speak to the housing activists without also speaking to the property owners or right. you know the real estate lobby. It's it's hard. Everybody has their particular perspective. And you kind of always have to be aware what their political agenda is. So that's why oftentimes when you're putting out a story, you have to get so many voices in. Now, um, you grew up where? I grew up in Queens. You grew up in, you grew up in Queens? Yeah. Because so, for me, I was wondering, what was in your childhood a neighborhood? I grew up on Long Island. And you went to the commercial strip where I lived, and it was the same stores forever. This pizza place, this hair salon, this butcher shop, this lawnmower repair and fertilizer shop. They were the same people. They were there my whole life, you know. And now we live in a city where everything is changing. Was it like that when you were young or was it consistent when you were a kid in Queens? I think it was consistent, similar to your experience. I grew up in a neighborhood called Fresh Meadows, and I lived within walking distance of a Bloomingdale's. And as a child, like, that was, like, we were so proud to have. It was, like, kind of like a middle-class neighborhood. Just the idea that as a, as a teenager, that, uh, that me and my friends were able to walk a few blocks and go into what we thought of as a really swanky New York City department store. You in know, Fresh Meadows. In Fresh Meadows of all places. Yeah. Bloomingdale's knows how cool Fresh Meadows is. The Bloomingdale's is no longer there. What's a store that closed that just really cut you to the quick? The closure of Barney's to me is significant because Barney's, yes, was it a very expensive luxury department store? It was. But if you also read about Barney's, you you know that Barney's supported a lot of young and up-and-coming designers whose clothes end up being very expensive. But a lot of their ideas wind up trickling down to the gaps of this world. There was you an know? incubation there, yeah. Right. And these ideas kind of actually affect, you know, people who can't even afford the clothes at Barney's. But they're still, it's disseminating ideas about culture and art and fashion that do reach all of us in ways that we might not even realize. Well, if fast fashion dies, I don't feel that bad about it. When I walked into <laughs> Barney's. yeah. When I walked into Barney's and every five feet, and I mean that literally, was a stanchion with a sign that said, everything must go. They had signs that said, everything must go, looming and floating over every surface you could adhese the sign to. Yeah. It was mind-blowing to watch Barney's on life support and you just see the people hovering to pull the cords out of them and the wires out of them and they're dead. So Gothamist is compiling a list. Would you like to submit your nominations for Sue on 13th Street. And when that Barnes & Noble closed near Lincoln Center, I died. Yeah. It had loved. the windows and the escalator. It had the windows. And I loved that store. And people hung out there all the time. I hung out it was there. right next to the movie theater, so you just killed time, right? <laughs> yeah. I hung out. The there. magazines. That was my hangout. I hung out. There. I have a coffee. Yeah. Tower Records. Uh, Tower Records. <sighs> And uh, H&H Bagels. Oh, right. On 80th, between 80th and 79th. The 79th Street Coffee Shop. Like, I did this story on the closure of Dwayne Reed's. 
Right. I know. Isn't that an interesting phenomenon? You know, for a long time, people hated Dwayne Reed's because it was seen as this behemoth. But now, this behemoth, they're disappearing. Yeah. And in this they're weird twist, you know, people kind of are saddened by it. Similar to Barnes & Noble. When Barnes & Noble closed Shakespeare Bookshop on Broadway in the 80s, everybody's like, you know, hey, man. Very uptight about Shakespeare Bookshop leaving. Yeah. And Barnes & Noble's there. Now Barnes & Noble's getting squeezed and everybody's like, hey, man. Right. Because there was a sense of permanence. They were landmarks. It was going to be there for decades, you just figured. And now you, you can't take that for granted that they're going to have this extended lifespan in a community anymore. What do your parents do for a living? What did your dad and mom do for a living? My mom was a residential real estate broker in Queens. <laughs> And my dad, he worked at a Japanese shipping company. It was just a clerical job. Mm -hmm. But he worked in the city. He worked in the Twin Towers. He was retired before 9-11. Yeah, yeah. And where did your writing career begin? So I graduated in 2008 from the journalism school. This is at Columbia. Yeah. They would often have employers come on campus, and they would basically uh, hole up in a conference room, and then you signed up, and you would get interviewed. And at the time, I had, you know, been studying to be a newspaper journalist. Mm -hmm. And the industry was basically cratering. And there was this one local paper that came, which was a paper in Stanford, Connecticut. It was called The Advocate. And um, the editor at the time, named John Brunig, came. And I could see, I could see, I was waiting outside. You know, it's like a glass conference room. And, you know, one after one, people went in and talked to him. And I was like thinking to myself, oh, my God, you know, this has to be like the last job in newspapers. So I sat with him and he was very chatty. So I actually didn't get to say much. Um, and then I shook his hand and then I said, I need to I need to get this job. If I don't get this job, there's no job out there for me in newspapers, at least. And that was really what I wanted to do. I wanted a very traditional journalism experience where I worked in a smaller community, and got to learn the ropes that way. That That is what I wanted, and I thought this was my ideal job. So I basically called him like maybe a week or two after meeting him, and I just said, listen, I really want this job. What can I do to get this job? And he said, you know what? Why don't you come in? We'll talk. We'll give you an assignment. So somehow I like gave myself a crash course in driving, and I drove out there. I was sweaty. I was a mess. And somehow I managed to do this assignment Fantastic. in which they had me drive around parts of rural Connecticut to cover some kind of school event. And it, amazingly, I got the job. How long were you there? For seven years. I was and so you, lucky. I was so lucky. When it came time to leave there, how did you know it was time? Oh, you could see the writing on the wall. The staff was getting smaller and smaller. And the stories were getting thinner and thinner. And I just realized that if I wanted to grow as a journalist, I couldn't do it there anymore. You know, when I started out there, they used to have this big, they made a big deal. Like everybody had to have this big Sunday enterprise story because Sunday was the day where it, traditionally most of the advertising came in and everybody sought to have this big Sunday story. Well, those Sunday stories started getting shorter and shorter and if you can't do that, if you can't do enterprise, I just lose my interest in it. So and from there, where did you go? A publication called The Real Deal. 
So in Stanford, that's when I first started covering real estate because when I got there, the reporter who covered zoning and development was on um, – he, he, he had to go to the military. So he was in Iraq. So he wasn't there. So they asked me, they said, can you do this? And no one wanted that beat. Everybody hated covering zoning because it requires the most number of meetings, the longest meetings. You were there just at City Hall, like for hours and hours. But I really didn't have a choice because I was new. So I said, sure, I'll do it. You know, you don't want to say no. What do you think it is in you that gives you the patience and the thoroughness to be willing to sit through these lengthy proceedings. What is it about you that thinks you're able to do that? Oh, well, I see, I tell people that I'm beat agnostic. I would cover anything. To me, it's about people. And that's why real estate is interesting is because when you're talking about property, I mean, like what engenders more passion than where you live and what you own or, you, or what you want to own I love being able to walk into a neighborhood that I haven't gone to very frequently and walking the area that I'm writing about and also meeting the people that I'm writing about. Mm -hmm. There's nothing more interesting about being a real estate reporter than getting to walk into somebody's home. There could be no more intimate experience. Years ago when I was buying my first apartment in New York and you go and they'd say, well, this apartment's for sale in this building or that building. And the people had died. And they hadn't put a dime into that apartment for 40 years. You know, they raised their kids there and maybe they painted it and that was it. And you thought, you know, you just to see how other people live. Right. And, and their personality right. is etched into how they live. Right, right. And you think about all the stories at the dinner table and what was cooked in this kitchen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> it's all of that. It's all good. Gothamist senior editor Elizabeth Kim. I'm Alec Baldwin and this is Here's the Thing. about McDonald's all day. Can't get it off my mind. I can already taste it. Ooh, got my mind on my mouth and my mouth ready for some Mickey D's deal. There's a deal for every moment at McDonald's. Right now, get two of your favorites for just $3.50. Mix and match a classic McChicken, a hot and spicy McChicken, or a juicy McDouble. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. Hey, it's Chuck Bryant from Movie Crush, and I want to let you know about a very special episode where I speak with TV legend Alan Ball on the 20th anniversary of his landmark HBO show, Six Feet Under. We cover everything from the show's inception to its legendary final season and finale. So many people have said that it, it was such a strong ending that that's uh, definitely very gratifying. A lot of other great shows have not been quite so lucky. So head over to Movie Crush wherever you find your favorite shows and check out our Six Feet Under 20th anniversary special with Alan Ball.